In the year 2004, it was the Olympics in Athens, Greece. And there was an American shooter by the name of Matt Emmons. And he was just literally one shot away from a double gold medal. He'd already won uh, a gold medal, and he had also uh, acquired the, the uh, title for the Shooting Sport Federation Championship in 2002 and again in 2004. His final target was just 50 meters away. He was guaranteed that he would win his double gold medal. All he had to do was hit the target. That was it. Just hit it. And he would win the gold medal. So he aimed, he breathed, he pulled the trigger, bang! He hit the target and went from a gold medal to eighth place. He cross-fired. He hit the target, but it was the wrong target. It was a target in the next lane over. He was aiming at the wrong target. Can you imagine the disappointment of hitting the wrong target? Bullseye, but the wrong target. And with that, he goes from a gold medal to eighth place. Wow. May I submit to us this morning that the church, in many respects, in many places, we have been aiming at the wrong target. We are not focusing on what God has really called us to be the primary mission of the church. We are shooting at the wrong target. and let, There are many things I could highlight. I could talk about how we emphasize temporal blessings over spiritual blessings. I could, uh, I could speak about so many different aspects, but let me just put it this way. Very succinctly stated, here's where we've gone off track. Here's how we've been aiming at the wrong target. We focus more on the temporal promises and provision of God than on the eternal relationship that we can have with the person and presence of God. When you ask the average Christian, what is the purpose for Jesus going to the cross? Why did Jesus die? Why did he suffer and then was raised to life again on the third day? You'll receive a myriad of responses, but probably the top three would be, so that my sins can be forgiven. So I can go to heaven, and I can experience the blessing of God even in this life as well. And all of those are true in part, but ultimately, Jesus told us the real reason for him going to the cross, dying for us, and being raised to life on the third day, In John chapter 17, verse 3. Now this is eternal life. Jesus said the main reason, the primary reason for his dying and being raised to life again is so that we could experience eternal life. But what is eternal life? Listen to this. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing God, knowing Jesus, having a personal and intimate relationship with the person and presence of God himself. I mentioned this last week. There are two primary languages that the Bible was written in. Hebrew, Aramaic, also parts of the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, what is known as Koine Greek. Now, in both Hebrew and Greek, the word that is translated know always refers to a personal experience. It never has to do with just intellectual assent or knowing something by fact, but it always refers to knowing and through experience. God wants you to know him personally. God wants you to know and experience him. He wants you to have an encounter with him. It's, 
It's not just something that, you know, like if you read a book, you might say, well, I think I understand who this author is. I know who the author is, but you've never met the author. You've never sat down with the author. You've never got to develop a relationship with the author. And in many ways, that's what it's like for some of us as Christians in that we read the Bible, but we still don't know the author. We know the Word of God, but we don't know the God of the Word. The Pharisees, Jesus said, diligently studied the Scriptures, and yet he said, you refuse to come to me that you might have eternal life. Isn't that powerful? Do you know that the Pharisees, they had to memorize the entire Old Testament in order to become a Pharisee? By the time they were the age of of 14, they had to memorize what is known as what we call the Pentateuch or or the law. They had to memorize it. That's a lot of writing. So they had to memorize the entire Old Testament in order to become a full-fledged Pharisee. Jesus said, you diligently study the Scriptures. You know the Word of God. You can quote it backwards, forwards, in all different ways, but yet you don't know God. You don't know my Father is what he said to them. That's mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. You know the Bible inside out. You can quote the verses, but yet you don't know personally and experientially my Father. Wow. The Lord has called us not to religion, not to rules per se, but to relationship. When we love him, we're going to obey his commandments. We're going to do what's pleasing him. But ultimately, if we don't have a personal relationship with him, it's just legalism. I do these things, Paul said. When I was a Pharisee, I was blameless. He kept all the commandments. He upheld the laws. But he never knew Jesus Christ personally. Wow. Last Sunday, we considered Moses. There came a point where God was so frustrated with his people because of their rebellion and their complaining that he said, that's it. I'm not going into the promised land with you. I'll send an angel and my angel will usher you into the promised land, but my presence will not accompany you. Now, Moses could have responded, Lord, I completely understand why you you feel this way, and, and I wouldn't dare ask you to go with us into the promised land because, Lord, truly we are a stiff necked people. We are rebellious. But, Lord, just send your angel. Bring us in. That's good enough. As long as we experience the promise, we'll be content. But that's not how Moses responded. Moses cried out in Exodus 33, in verse 15 and 16, he said, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else would distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? In other words... It wasn't enough that they had sound theology. It wasn't enough that they could call themselves the people of God. Unless his tangible accompanying presence was with them, Moses said, everything else is futile. Don't send us up. Lord, don't even take us into the promised land unless you're willing to accompany us unless your presence goes with us. Moses would not settle for the promise without the presence. How many of us today would just settle for the promise? How many of us today do settle for the promise? There are entire theological camps 
particularly in the charismatic Pentecostal sector, that say, you know what, I'm blessed, I want this promise, I'm going to confess it, I'm going to claim it, I'm going to get this, I'm going to get that. You know, we call it blab it, grab it, name it, claim it, or whatever it is. And in all of that, we don't have a personal relationship with God. We experience the blessings, we see our prayers answered, we may even prosper, but we don't have a personal relationship with God. The Bible says that the letter kills, but it's a spirit that gives life. God wants us to pursue His presence and person, not just His provision and promises. He wants us to know Him. To know Him. And when we know Him, we can have everything else. We will experience everything else we need. Seek first His kingdom and righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He says in Amos, seek me and live. Seek me and live. Let me become your prize. Let me be your pearl of great price. Let me be the one that you seek after. And when you seek me, you'll have everything you know. So many of us today, we're contending for healing. We're contending for deliverance. We're contending for salvation. But we're not seeking after God. And God wants us to know that when we come to know him personally and walk with him, that we can move into a place where we will see miracles, but we're not to focus just merely on the things that he can give us. He wants us to focus on him. Can you imagine in a marriage a husband and a wife, a couple, they get married. After the ceremony is over, the husband and I'm looking forward to our time together. I'm looking forward to going on our honeymoon, to spending time together. And then what happens is the woman says, oh, I'm going shopping. Give me your credit card. I, I, I've got plans. I'm going shopping for the next couple of weeks. You stay here. I'll be back. <laughs> right? In other words, why did she marry him? Not for him, not for relationship, not for love, but for the stuff, the things he could give her. And I know that's absurd, and I'm using hyperbole, but I'm trying to make a point here is that in many ways that's how we are with God. We don't know him. We don't spend time with him. We don't hear his voice. We don't know his love in many respects. I'm generalizing. But man, do we know how to present our prayer list to him. Like we get our shopping cart out and go down the aisles of heaven. I'll have one of these, I'll have one of those, put that in here. Better get some toilet paper because you know what's going on with toilet paper, right? And I'll get this and I'll get that. And God's like, prayer as he intended is more about pursuing his presence, pursuing the person of God, than it is the things that he can give us. It's about knowing him. Most of my prayer time is simply praise and worship. I do ask God for things because the Bible says I should make my requests now. I do, but I spend most of my time just telling him and speaking to my soul about how great he is. How awesome he is. Father, I love you. You've done so much. Jesus, I love you. You gave your life. And I spend about 80% of my time just adoring him, just worshiping him, just fellowshipping with him. I also listen to him. What is it that you want to say to me? What is it that you want me to know? And as I come into that place of great intimacy with God, I begin to hear clearly from his heart. Sometimes we just need to shut up and let them talk. Sometimes we need to be still and chill and know that he's God. Be still. One translation says cease striving and know that he's God. Let him be God in your life. Let him 
get to know you. And why don't you get to know him? What if for the next 30 days we spend one hour a day as a starting point just worshiping God? Pray in the spirit. Pray within the understanding. But worship him. Worship him. Put on music. Worship him. If you play guitar, get your guitar out. Worship him. Do whatever you need to do. But just begin to give him the glory. Just begin to praise him. Give him the preeminence in your life. The word worship in English comes from two different terms that literally means to make him supreme. To make him the one that we see as ultimately worthy. He's worthy. No one else is worthy. Sometimes... You've heard the expression that we, what we do is we, we talk to God about how big our problems are, right? But we need to begin to magnify God. The Bible says, oh, magnify the Lord. Magnify Him. How do you make God any bigger? It's not that He becomes bigger. It's our perception of Him. It is our perspective of Him that becomes bigger. And so we begin to tell our problems. We begin to tell the enemy, my God is great. My God is powerful. There's nothing he can't do. This may not look good in the natural, but my God is a God of the supernatural. And I'm going to praise him and I'm going to worship him until heaven shifts in my life. Your presence. It's his presence that makes all the difference. When I said we've been shooting at the wrong target, here's one specific way we've been doing that. Traditional Christianity has emphasized and even worked hard at filling our church buildings with people, resulting in what we call church growth. We created a movement called the church growth movement. There's books, literally volumes of books written about church growth. And it's all about filling up buildings with people, getting people in our church. You know, even today, it's not as bad as it used to be, but you can go to conferences and, and pastors will get together and say, so uh, how many people are you running? Right? The metrics we use to measure whether our church is really what God wants it to be often is how many people gather on the weekend. How many people say they're members of our church? But that's not at all the way Jesus operated. That's not at all what God intended for us. How many know that Jesus preached to the multitudes, but his focus wasn't on just creating a crowd, gathering a crowd. In fact, there was a point where A couple of times in his ministry, the cloud went down to to just a very small group of people because Jesus offended them. But what was Jesus after? He was after a people that would be so filled with his glory, so filled with his presence that wherever they went. See, this true mission of the gospel is about filling people with God himself. Resulting in what Habakkuk 2.14 says, the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. The earth shall be filled. The New Living Translation puts it this way. The earth shall be filled with an awareness of the glory of the Lord. It doesn't say the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. It says the earth will be filled with the knowledge or the awareness of the glory of the Lord. There's a big difference. God wants us to be aware, to be cognizant, to experience his glory in our lives. How does this happen? How does God reveal his glory? Well, let's go back to Moses again. You remember when Moses went on top of the mountain, Mount Sinai? He was there for 40 days and 40 nights. 
You ask the average Christian, what happened? What significant event occurred when Moses was on top of that mountain? Most believers will say, God transmitted to him the Ten Commandments. He gave him those commandments written on a stone. And so that's true, but do you understand that there is only one chapter in the book of Exodus devoted to the Ten Commandments, chapter 20. But the rest of the book of Exodus is devoted to something completely different that happened at that time he was on top of the mountain. What am I referring to? Not only did Moses receive the Ten Commandments, but God gave him the blueprint for a building that would be known as the sanctuary or the tabernacle. The, almost the entire duration of the book of Exodus, after he goes to the mountain, is devoted to the blueprints on how to build this tabernacle. Why? Because Exodus 25, verse 8, shows us, reveals to us God's intention for his people. Exodus 25, 8, God says to Moses, Instruct the people to build me or make me a sanctuary. Why? That I might dwell among them. I want to dwell among my people. I want them to build me a sanctuary that I might come into their midst and have fellowship and communion with them. In other words, God wasn't just looking for a people that would outwardly conform to his commandments, but he was looking for and desiring a people that he could have intimacy with, sweet communion. Let them build me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, that we might have communion together that I might interact and be present with my people. Isn't that powerful? God wants that. In the New Testament, it's not a physical building that is the sanctuary, that is the temple or the tabernacle, but it's you. It's me. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit individually. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it speaks of the church collectively becoming the temple of the living God. Ephesians 2.22 says, In whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place or a habitation of God by the Spirit. Ephesians 1.23 in the Amplified says, The church is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, for in that body... In the church lives a full measure of him who makes everything complete and who fills everything everywhere with himself. The Amplified Bible, again, Ephesians 3.19, Paul's prayer for the church is that we might be filled through all our being unto all the fullness of God, and may we have the richest measure of the divine presence and become a body that is wholly filled and flooded with God himself. Whoa! That's Paul's prayer. I did a sermon one time on the prayer, on a series really, on the prayers of Paul. Isn't it interesting? Paul never prayed for people's temporal needs. Not in, there's nothing recorded in the scripture, you know, where he really, look, he might have said, you know, sometimes, but this primary emphasis was never on people's temporal needs being taken care of. In other words, I pray for such and such, Father, because they're sick. I pray for this or that. I pray for this and that. Paul never did that. What did he pray for? He prayed for what I call a resurrection revelation. He prayed for the saints over and over again that we might know who God is, what he has done for us, and who we are in relationship to him. He prayed that our eyes would be opened He prayed that we would know experientially his love. He prayed not just for the temporal, but primarily he focused on us knowing God personally and the things that he did for us by revelation. That is worth serious study. Many of us, we're like the children of Israel. In Psalm 103, verse 7, 
It says, you made known your ways to Moses, your acts to the children of Israel. God, you made known your ways to Moses, and the children of Israel knew your acts or your mighty works. What is he referring to? He's saying that the children of Israel had witnessed the miracles. They had seen God do amazing miracles, but only Moses knew his ways. Only Moses knew God's ways. And if there was not a Moses that knew the ways of God, there would not have been a people seeing and witnessing his mighty acts. What that means is one person can contend for something to happen that impacts many people's lives. Do you still listen to music on cassette tapes? Do you still connect to the internet with dial-up? No? Then why are you still using a data warehouse? The data warehouse had a great run, but it's outdated. It wasn't built for 90% of today's data. It can't handle modern use cases like machine learning. It's time for a new paradigm. The Databricks Lakehouse brings all your data together on one open platform so you can tackle every use case from BI to AI. Discover Lakehouse at Databricks.com. But God's intention is not that we just have some super spiritual elite person that has this relationship with the Father, but ultimately that every one of us would come to know him personally so that we would too would know his ways so that we can see his acts and make known his acts to those that don't know him. Come on now. Give Jesus praise. I'm preaching better than your amen. I'm sorry if I get a little bit excited about Jesus did on the cross. Forgive me. Oh, I get excited at a hockey game, and that's okay, or a football match, or whatever sport you like, cricket. Or I know we got some people that like cricket in the building. I know that, right? But ultimately, we need to be excited about the gospel, what Jesus did for us at the cross. Paul prays in Ephesians 1 that your eyes might be illuminated. In the Greek it says that the eyes of your heart would be flooded with light. That you might know who he is, what he's done for you. That you might know experientially. That you may experience his power. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That you might know his love, his all-consuming love. That you might know all of the things that are yours as a result of what God did by sending his son Jesus to the cross. But it only comes through personal relationship. Isn't that amazing? The Bible tells us, particularly in Second Peter, that all of the promises of God are experienced or, or activated in our life through our personal knowledge of him. I don't have time to preach that, but you, that's your homework this week, okay? Read Second Peter chapter 1, the first four verses, and it says every promise, all of the promises of God will be activated and experienced in your life through your knowledge of him, through the knowledge of him, through knowing him. The, Hebrew, uh, the Greek word genasko, knowing him experientially. Personal relationship. See, many times we, we talk about who we are in Christ, our identity. That's important. You guys still, everybody's awake? I know you lost a bit of sleep last night. It's okay. My phone, I, you know, I looked at my phone. I was up like till about 1.30 and then I woke up again and I looked and it was like 6 o'clock. I was like, man, that didn't seem right. What? So, but here's, a, here's my point, right? A lot of times when we talk about knowing God, personal relationship, we talk about identity. We need to know who we are. We need to know our identity in Christ. I believe that. Do you believe that this morning? Amen. We need to know who we are. We need to know whose we are. And what ends up happening, though, is often we go through this intellectual exercise where we 
assemble all of the scripture verses that speak about our identity in Christ. And, you know, there's books out there that you can read and, and you know, called New Creation Realities. You can know these new creation realities. I'm a new creation. And so we, we get all these scriptures together and we, we memorize them and we quote them and, and we say, you know, I'm more than a conqueror. I'm, I'm the head, not the tail. I'm, I am loved. I'm beloved of the Father. And all of these scriptures are true and they're powerful and we should know them and we need to rehearse them and we need to meditate them. But ultimately there comes a point where if we don't have a personal relationship with him, it's just academic. It's just a formality. And at times we're even going to doubt it. And we just kind of, you know, and, and psychologists said, there, there was a study done where psychologists actually said that if you speak something and you quote something over and over again, but in your heart you're really not convinced that it's true, that it will actually do more damage to your psyche than not believing it at all. I'm a new creation. But inwardly, we don't know it. We don't really believe it. I'm whole. I'm healed. But inwardly, we really don't believe it. Why? Because identity must come out of intimacy. It flows from intimacy. I use this illustration often. In the book of John, there are seven times in the Gospel of John that the writer refers to the disciple whom Jesus loved. Seven times. The disciple whom Jesus loved. Most scholars and commentators would say that John, who wrote the Gospel of John, is referring to himself. And there is literary evidence And there is historical evidence that that's true. I believe that. I believe it was John. But here's what I want you to understand. John says, there was this disciple whom Jesus loved. Me. I'm your boy. I'm the one. He's speaking of himself. Some of you say, John, who are you? Come on now. Who do you think you are? He's like, I'm Jesus' favorite. (laughs) I remember we were at a conference, and I was one of the speakers, and the theme was on knowing the love of God. That was what I was teaching on. So I had a name tag on. We all had name tags. Hello, my name is... And instead of Glenn, I put Father's favorite son. Now, below it, a.k.a. Glenn Blakeney, okay? Now, what was, people are like, what? What, who are you? I said, I'm the father's favorite. Like, who do you, you are arrogant. I said, no, I am secure in my identity. I know who I am, and you can be the father's favorite as well. Because he doesn't show favoritism. He's not partial. But you can know him, you can know him as, and know yourself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now listen to this. In the 21st chapter of John, the last time that reference is made, there was this one disciple whom Jesus loved. We see John with his head on Jesus' breast. They're at the table, they're reclining, and John has his head on Jesus' breast. Can you imagine? Can you imagine hearing the heart beat of the Son of God. Whew. John did. John was so close to him that he heard his heart pain. But John also heard some personal things from Jesus. He was privy to the most intimate comments that would come from Jesus. How did he know that he was the disciple whom Jesus loved? I believe it was because he was the most intimate with Jesus. He was intimate with Jesus. He he pursued his presence. He wanted to be in his presence. 
He wanted to be close to him. And because of that, he understood who he was. And this is what the New Testament is all about. It's about being a people that are prepared for his presence. And how do we prepare ourselves? We get close to him. We get close to him. We draw near to him. Another thing that we need to do is we we need to sanctify ourselves. And the word sanctuary, going back to Exodus 25, 8, Moses, let them build me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them, that I may dwell in their midst. The word sanctuary comes from the Hebrew word Kadesh. In Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 12, the Lord, it says, I'm the Lord who sanctifies you. In Hebrew, it's I am Jehovah Kadesh. I'm Yahweh Kadesh. It means to make holy. And the word was never used in reference to an ordinary building or facility. It was always used of a place of worship or a sacred place. Let them build me a sacred place that I may dwell among them. In other words, God's saying, I'm not just going to dwell anywhere. You see, in Hebrews 1 verse 3, we're told that Jesus, the Son, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. In John 14, 9, Jesus said, to Philip, don't you know, Philip, even after I've been with you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father? So how can you say, show us the Father? He came to reveal the Father. I think the most profound revelation of why Jesus came to the earth was that he came to reveal the Father to a legalistic generation that knew him as a judge, that knew him as a harsh God that demanded loyalty. He came to reveal particularly not to the religious, but to the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the Father, the love of the Father. He came to reveal. See, if Jesus just came to die for our sins then why would he spent three and a half years living among us? He could have just went to the cross, died for his sins. But he spent three and a half years living among the people, revealing who his father was. And not only revealing the father, but also demonstrating how we are to live in relationship with the father. He's the second Adam, is what Paul said. The first Adam had intimacy with the Father, with God in the garden. The first Adam, of course, sinned, fell short of the glory, was expelled for the garden. But the second Adam came to seek and to save that which was lost. Notice it doesn't say to seek and to save those that are lost. Seek and to save that impersonal which was lost, past tense. What was lost? What thing was lost? By the way, in the original Greek, that's the proper literal translation. That which was lost. What was lost? What did Adam and Eve? Intimacy. They were expelled from the presence of the Father. Intimacy. They they weren't they didn't have access to his presence. Jesus came to restore that. Ultimately, he had to die on the cross to do that. So we could be forgiven and then reconciled to the Father. So our sins could be redeemed, atoned for, so we could be reconciled to the Father. He came also to show us how we are supposed to live in relationship with the Father. He came to show us this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you sent. Here we are, standing in his presence, 
here we are. The veil has been torn in the Holy of Holies when Jesus died from the top to the bottom, from heaven to earth, so that we can move into the Holy of Holies, have intimate relationship with him, know him, commune with him, experience who he is. You see, Jesus talked about how the Father showed him all things. The Father shows me all things, John 5, 20. And then he said in John 15, 15, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends because whatsoever the Father has revealed to me, I make known it to you. Everything the Father has made known to me, I make it known to you. What? How much is that? Every, the Father has revealed to me all things he does. Then he says, everything the Father's made known to me, I make it known to you. Come on now. Are we going a little deep this morning? See, Jesus pursued and protected the true knowledge of God. In other words, the f- presence of his Father in his life more than anything else. We, said it, we, we quoted Hebrews 5 verse 7 last week. And I just want to touch on it again. It says that Jesus was heard because of his reverence toward God, his godly fear, his piety, in that he shrank from the horrors of separation from the bright presence of the Father. That's what the Amplified Bible says in the classic edition. He was heard because he shrank from the horrors of separation from the bright presence of the Father. Other translations say because of his piety, because of his godly fear. It's very interesting. The word that is translated piety or godly fear is a unique word in the Greek language. It's not the typical word for fear. It literally speaks of being circumspect, being meticulous, of of being very cautious. He was heard because he would make sure he didn't do anything that would grieve his father. He always did those things that were pleasing to him. John 8, 29 says, I always do those things that are pleasing to my father. He was intentional, precise, and circumspect, being cautious, making sure he always did what was pleasing to his father so that he shrank from anything that would cause him to be separated from that intimate presence that the father had with him. Hebrews 1.9 in the Passion Translation says, for you have cherished, speaking of Jesus, for you have cherished righteousness and detested lawlessness. Jesus cherished righteousness and detested lawlessness or iniquity. For this reason, or as a result of this, God, your God, has anointed you and poured out the oil of bliss on you more than any of your friends. Wow. What about us? Ephesians 4.30, Do not grieve the Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The word grieve means offend, to cause sorrow, to affect with sadness. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is drawing you into the secret place. When he's saying, I want to have fellowship with you. I want you to spend time with me. Don't blow him off. Don't grieve him. Don't, don't speak words that would grieve him. Don't have thoughts that would grieve him. When these things happen, repent. Give short accounts. With God. And don't do anything that would offend him. See, the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus as a dove. In John 1.32 says, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And remain on him. The word remain literally means to dwell there, to be permanent, to not depart. So the Spirit never departed from Jesus. And he was cautious that he would not do anything to cause the Holy Spirit 
to leave or to be grieved. Conversely, not only the negative, but the positive. 2 Timothy 1.6. You received a gift from God when I placed my hands on you to ordain you. Now I'm reminding you to fan that gift into flames. Fan it into flames. Don't just grieve the Holy Spirit, but pursue the Holy Spirit. Fan it into flame. Cause God's presence to just become so real, so strong, so present in your life. Not just on Sunday, not just whenever, but all of the time. All of the time. You see, we were created not only to know God, but to make him known. It's so simple, isn't it? To know God and to make him known. That's true. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, remember it says that God made man, both male and female, man, the woman and the man, according to his likeness and in his image. You remember that? So in one translation, the message, it says this. God spoke, let us make human beings in our image, make them reflecting our nature. Why does it, Eugene Peterson, in, in this translation, render that verse in those words? Why? Because there's two words, right? There's image and likeness. The word that is translated likeness is a verb. It's an action word. It literally means to manifest, to, to show, to display, or to reflect. We were created in his image and likeness, but also to reflect his image and likeness. What does that mean? In Acts chapter 4, verse 13, Peter and and John had been preaching. And it says that the council members had them arrested. And it says that they were astonished as they witnessed the bold courage of Peter and John, especially when they discovered they were just ordinary men who had never had any religious training. It wasn't their education, it wasn't their eloquence, it wasn't their expertise that caused these council members to take notice. What was it? The Passion Translation says, Then they began to understand the effect Jesus had on them simply by spending time with him. Wow. You know, when, we get, when, when you live with somebody long enough, you kind of talk like them. You, you think like them. Like, I, I can tell you what my wife's thinking. She can tell me what I'm, what I'm thinking. She'd be like, well, don't you go there. You know, like, how do you know? I, would, well, I know what you're thinking, you see. But the point I'm trying to make is when we get around God, we begin to take on his character. We take on who he is. We reflect his likeness to others, his nature, his character. And people say, what is it about these guys, Peter and John, it's that they had been with Jesus? They had spent time with Jesus. They knew Jesus. They had a personal relationship with Jesus. So when Jesus said, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father, Paul, in essence, says in Ephesians, that the world should be able to look at the church and say, when we see the church, when they see the church, that they see Jesus. They see Christ in us. They, they see Jesus. See, It's not our theology that's going to cause people to come to God. It's not how cool we are, our worship team is, you know, how slick our productions are and all these things. But what is going to cause people to come to Christ? What's going to cause Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, atheists, Satanists? What's going to cause them to come to Christ? The presence of God. The presence of God. When the presence of God is released, love, kindness, joy, life, they're going to encounter God. 
When we get closer to God, when we begin to seek God, when we begin to move into his presence and we value his presence about everything else, I can tell you things will sort out in our lives by default. Things will sort out. We'll start seeing prayers answered. We'll start seeing things change because our focus is on getting to know him and making him known. And all of a sudden, we don't even, we don't even have to preach. We pray we get around people, and it just has an effect upon them. I've seen people in the presence of God fall down and cry out to Jesus for salvation without even experiencing a message, not even speaking a word to them. I've seen miracles happen that bring people to a place. See, see this is the gospel. This is the gospel. If you look at how Jesus lived and how he operated, this is the gospel. Do you believe that? I, come on, thank you. That's the gospel. Know him. Make him known. Know him. The more I know him, the more I realize I don't know him. There's so much more to know. The more I know him, the more people see Christ in me. It becomes natural for me to love people. I know you all have no problem loving people. Sorry, I live in Texas. Sorry about that. I'm trying to get rid of that. I don't know how you say it in Canada yet. Ewans or Ewes or I don't know. That's somewhere else. I live in too many places. But the point is, how do people... Encounter God. The Bible says in the church is the fullness of his presence. We're his body. We're his sanctuary. That's it. Simple. Let's get close. Let's seek him. Let's love him. Let's worship him. Let's cry out to him for his presence. Not just the stuff he can give us, but for who he is. Progressive presents Forest Metaphors about bundling your home and auto. In sports, three goals is a hat trick. And when you bundle your home and auto with Progressive, you get a hat trick of great savings and round-the-clock protection. So you might be thinking, wait, that's two things. A hat trick is three. But in this metaphor, great savings counts as two goals, and so does round-the-clock protection. So it's like four goals, and that's more than three. It's basic math. Forced Metaphors, presented by Progressive. Bundle and protect today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discount not available in all states or situations. You coming to bed, hon? Yep, honey, I'll be right there. Just got to turn out the light. Ow! 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 Ah! Some things never change. Like your kids always leaving tiny toys on the floor for you to step on. And Geico saving folks lots of money on their car insurance. Sweetie, I think I left the downstairs light on. Please don't make me go. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more.